There's people who write the tools and there's people who use the tools. Why don't you just grind your own wheat and make your own bread from scratch and eat it at lunch also? This is why there's always haters on Hacker News. Software is a very fashion-oriented world. Well, I think it goes back to the medieval times. There's wildly varying positions on what this means for open source. Okay, what are our points of failure? Let's not make that a point of failure again. Each of these incidents brings the Node ecosystem quite a bit forward. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Hey, Paul. So somebody unpublished a module called LeftPad, and the internet basically exploded. And now it's been a couple weeks since then, so there's a lot of different topics to cover in terms of what this means for open source, whether it means that people have forgotten how to program. Yeah, so launch darkly, or sorry, the, the left pad, I don't know. I'm obviously looking at my own t-shirt. Uh, the, 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 you're, look, you're looking at your launch darkly t-shirts. The, the left pad incident was was pretty interesting. And one of the things that, that, that we did when coming up to this is just like looking at all of the Hacker News discussions and comments on it, and it's there's wildly varying positions on what this means for open source, what it means for for whether people can program, what it means for like about the the Node ecosystem. So to to kind of kick this off, why don't you kind of give us a, a recap of of the entire incident? Yeah. So in short, a programmer had a module called Kick K I K, uh, which is also a very popular messaging app. I mean, I, even I've heard of it, and I'm not a teenager. The Kick lawyers contacted the dude, said, "Please take down your module, change it." And the programmer said, "No, you know, I don't. I basically don't believe in copyright laws." So then the Kick people contacted NPM. The NPM people took down the module called Kick, and the guy in I'd say kind of a fit of pique said, "Okay, you took down my one module. I'm going to take down all my modules. Basically, I'm taking my marbles and going home." Okay. So he took down all of his modules, one of which turned out to be an incredibly popular module called LeftPad, which did basically what the name implied. It inserted left pads. And without this, an NPM, the quote I read was builds all over the world started to fail very quickly. So as I understand it, LeftPad was used by another module, which was used by another module, which was used by something core or like this incredibly popular module. Yeah, it was right. it was basically turtles on top of turtles on top of turtles, and at the bottom turtle was this guy who kind of took his marbles and went home. Yeah, or yanked the bottom Jenga, basically. Gotcha. And so all the builds started to fail. People's deploys started to fail, and people got people got pissed. People got pissed because they didn't even realize that they had this dependency. So what happened was npm basically republished it. They said that even though you're the original publisher, so there was a lot of there was a lot of outcry on the internet, and then they republished it. NPM just basically said you, you don't have the rights to unpublish this. Gotcha. So, um, but they they had an unpublished button, as I understand it. So he 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 did something that was built into NPM to to remove a module. Yeah, and since then they've tightened their rules a lot. They basically said that this should be something that's used extremely rarely, if at all, and not something that you could just do. Capriciously. So one thing that's interesting about the NPM ecosystem and, and, and the Node ecosystem in general is they've had a bunch of things like this. Things that are that are security related or that are drama related or 
and, and people have repeatedly come out and say, oh, no, no jazz is a tar pit or, or ghetto or whatever it is that people use to, to describe poor ecosystems, that no, node programmers don't know how to code and, and so on and so on. And what, what it looks to me like is, is you know, each of these incidents brings the node ecosystem quite a bit forward to the point that, that I mean, node is, is relatively new. It, it hasn't had 15 years before, before prime time in the way that... Um, Ruby or Python did, or twenty years before it got big, or, or and it's a real kind of bottom-up thing. You know, someone built it, and there was some stewards, and then someone else took over, and then NPM took over, and, and it's it's this sort of weird language from an ecosystem perspective, and it didn't have the same advantages that like Java had or that C or C plus plus had in in order to get to maturity, and so each of these incidents propels it closer to maturity. Yeah. I'd compare it somewhat to when electricity first started coming out, and then you were just working through all the issues that could happen. Like, for example, when a, a power line went down or a transformer blew, mm-hmm. like you work through, okay, what are our points of failure? Let's not make that a point of failure again. Mm-hmm. So NPM changed their policies on on, on the, this basis, right? Yep. So now you can't have an individual contributor being able to unpublish, even if they originally published. Now mm-hmm. you have to contact them, and it's much more stringent. Gotcha. Their response, despite people being well, people were annoyed at their response. I, it seems perfectly rational to me. Oh, I, I think it seems perfectly rational. But the, I mean, the, this is the thing about the internet. There's always some set of people who are annoyed at, at everything you do. Well, you so, know, the, the, the internet is full of billions of people. I mean, right. there, there's got to be some sort of standard de- deviation, or otherwise, it would be a very boring internet. Right, and th- th- this is why this is why there's always haters on Hacker News. <laughs> no, no, no matter what you do, <laughs> if you do it one way, there'll be one group of haters. If you do it another way, there'll be, there'll be a different group of haters. And so, with LeftPad, there was people who were annoyed that NPM retroactively decided that they had ownership over their namespace, which previously they had they had sort of gifted to people in the community, the first people to take the the namespace. Oh, you mean the the original thing about KIK? So there's not, but there's also the left pad. They they took away the sort of autonomy of the left pad author. I read a good article that basically says part of open source is if it truly is open source, do you maintain the rights to it, or is it a community project? Mm. The traditional way of deciding that sort of ownership was, was the fork. Yeah, that that you could go and you could fork. And when you forked, you weren't necessarily entitled to the same name. You weren't entitled to the same trademarks. When Debian forked Firefox, they called it Ice Weasel. When Jenkins was forked or Hudson was forked, it became Jenkins. Um, even even Emacs has had multiple forks, and GCC got forked, and they they, they all got new names. Yeah, right. But what what was the the fork here? It it wasn't even a fork. It was it was a republish of the same thing, the same software, in a namespace that the original author didn't control. So t- typically, you own the URL. You know, if if you have a software library, you you own the URL, and they did own in some sense the, the the URL within npm or the name within within npm space. And npm, the the sort of owners of that namespace, overrode it. And I, I think. They did what was necessary for good order. Sure, sure. I completely agree. I think that was that was a good decision. I mean, I mean, so to take this to a logical conclusion, what if uh, you had a module named LeftPad, mm-hmm. and you decided that like as a prank, you were going to rewrite it to be RightPad? Mm-hmm. Like, sure, that's is that within your rights? Kind of, but it's a real jerk thing to do that you probably want to prevent. This is kind of one of the dangers of the whole ecosystem around centralized package managers. Of 
sort of trusted package managers yeah. where there's no actual trust involved. Uh, so what, what I mean by that is what is published does not have any gatekeepers. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, it, it's great. It, it, it allows an ecosystem to grow much faster, but it has safety concerns because people generally don't pin their packages to an exact version. You're basically pinning it to a floating value. You're pinning it to a floating value. And that floating value could change. You know, there's no guarantee of what a minor number means, or what a major number means, or what a patch number means, of what a patch even means, right? There's some sort of like general community guidelines in, in semantic versioning, but there's no enforcement of that. Yeah, and I mean this basically goes back to the whole cathedral versus bazaar thing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's it's very bazaar. Yeah. It's well, bizarre and, and intentionally and bizarre. So. Um, and intentionally so. It's it's the thing that allows a community to grow. And is there a point at which open source communities need to like batten down the hatches to prevent that sort of behavior or to I, prevent that sort of risk? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think this goes back to something we talked about with Nadia and Sean a couple episodes ago about when you buy from a corporation, you have some sort of guarantee of standards that they publish somewhere that you know this is this is our, our guarantees versus with open source you don't have you don't normally have those same sort of guarantees. Even when you do, it tends to be uh, there's a, no enforcement mechanism, right? So there's no enforcement mechanism in in the bazaar. Well, there, there, there's no um like so with a company if a company has said okay we're gonna release twice a year and it's going to have this level of quality and they break that you can mm-hmm. you can walk with your feet or your money right 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 if an open source project stops or does something that you don't like there's very little enforcement and and the theoretically you you could walk you know you you, you could fork the thing but when you end up in uh, in an ecosystem that that has massive network effects in in the way that that npm does you you can't walk with it because the pensies are all transitive. The the left pad was was you know a, a turtle way at the bottom of the stack. <laughs> it was, then you, it was almost like a turtle hatchling. So to to fork left pad, you would have had to fork the entire npm ecosystem. Yeah, and it's not even the fork is not the issue. The the the, the issue was that people were depending on it being in a certain place in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that it wasn't forked. It was just like this entire structure at the bottom was gone. I guess what I'm saying is that if you get pissed off with a certain set of developers or a certain set of practices within the npm community because they're so interlinked you don't have the traditional open source option yeah, of forking absolutely yeah. absolutely um, you could rename it you could pick a different library but because of the way and i'm not sure if they still do this cuz i i read something about it but in npm it used to be that the that the version of the software that your library took was the version that library got? Do you know what I mean? But okay, so so let's let's say I've a um, the, 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 there's some software. Let's call it left pad. All right, let's um, call it let's call it right pad. Right, right pad. So right pad version one is being used by library A, mm-hmm. and right pad version two is being used by library B. In the Java ecosystem and many many other ecosystems, only one version of right pad will be used. Yeah. And I believe in NPM, both versions of WritePad will be used. So library A will use version one, and library B will use version two. Now that that's definitely the way that it used to be. I'm not sure if they've actually changed that. Yeah, that, I don't I don't know, but that sounds very messy very quickly. So both both options are terrible. Yeah, and there isn't a right way to do it. So it, really, what it depends on. So it, the NPM way of doing it, every library get its own version of the dependencies, is fantastic. Because it lets that library do what it actually intended to do under under the covers. 
If, however, you start you know having an object that gets sent around to that two modules or you know re- let's say it receives a um, I, I think at a HTTP packet or something like that would, would be a good example. Let's say you take a HTTP packet from one module and you send it to another module and they have different understandings of the shape of that of that object or or what functions you can run on that object, then then that's messy. Yeah. Absolutely. But on the other hand, if you override the version of WritePad that some other library is using, you you end up with all sorts of problems. Yeah. And th- this is a major problem in the sort of the Maven ecosystem. And uh, at CircleCI, we used Clojure, and Clojure is built on top of the Maven ecosystem. And we would have bugs where the library that we used, one library that we used, had a dependency, yeah. and that went in. That was in the package file before another thing, and so that's the version of of the of the package that we used. Yeah. So we would have to pick, and to resolve that, we have to pick the library that that works. And often there isn't a library that works for both, or there isn't a sort of sub dependency that that works for both. So the there's a clusterfuck no matter which way you do it. Yeah, I mean, we, we run into the same issues with our SDKs. I mean, because we have dependencies on other libraries that sometimes conflict. Right. Disaster. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, the bigger point I think was so there was an interesting backlash, I think, that everybody kind of projected what they wanted on the NPM thing. People said, oh, people don't know how to program anymore. Mm. You know, why, why do you even use something called LeftPad? Right. You know, why don't you just, you know, grind your own wheat and make your own bread from scratch and eat it at lunch also? I have no sympathy at all for for this view of the world. Uh, that you should make everything from scratch. That, 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 that oh, we've forgotten how to program because we we left pad. Yeah, I, I, the fact that we have modules available that make it easier and easier and easier to program is a good thing. I, I think it's kind of different to that. I think it's more of a curmudgeon view of the world. Wait, it's wait. a it's a get off my lawn. Wait, that you're the curmudgeon? No, the, the the people who complain have we forgotten how to program anymore? I think it's a no true Scotsman kind of argument. Real programmers know how to write their own left pad. Real programmers write in statically typed languages. Real programmers write in C. Real programmers, and I'm going back in time here. Real programmers write in in assembly. Real yeah. programmers hand code their the tweak the 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 needles on the. <laughs> they do their own garbage collection. Oh, and it's garbage collection. What is this? Garbage <laughs> collection is is for amateur coders, right? I mean, you, you, we, you we, could we, just as easily have written, "Have we forgotten how to manually we, allocate memory?" Or you might as well say, like, nobody knows how to make their own transistors anymore. I mean, I mean, like the entire right, exactly. the entire computing revolution has been that you no longer have to assemble a computer by hand. Right, and each each layer of the ecosystem allows. A vastly larger number of people to to take part in it. So I think the the thing that we're seeing now, the and this has been happening for five or ten years, but what what's getting really really big now is people who only know how to front end program, yeah. people who only know JavaScript and HTML and CSS, and they go to boot camps and they come out. They they may, maybe have some like vague Rails understanding, and they call themselves coders. And and we the real programmers who who know how to write a quicksort and who know how to write a left pad, we don't welcome them to to our community. And and frankly, I mean, I have felt this in the past. I, I've since changed my mind, but it's a very very common perspective. Well, I think it goes back um, to the medieval times. Mm-hmm. Sure. No. No. I, well, I, I mean, I, I totally the, see it. The, the the entire reason why there were guilds and apprenticeships was because people didn't want their knowledge to be cheap. Right. Like so, it used to be. So the reason why, um, you know, being a doctor takes seven years is because they wanted it to be something that only a few could do. Yep. 
and that they could then charge a lot of money. Right. You 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 can protect your your industry as a to protect your own value to society. Yeah. So if if or just if, your, your earnings even your your earnings. So if if somebody could go to boot camp and learn for six months and become an adequate coder in front mm-hmm. end. Suddenly, it's very hard to justify charging, you know, or getting paid like one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Right, right, right. The more programmers there are in the ecosystem, the more people available to hire, the less valued your skills become. Yeah, and I'm and I'm certainly going to argue both sides. I think a talented programmer does have a deeper knowledge of the bubble sort, the quick sort, mm-hmm. and but I think there is a place in the world and a welcoming place, to be honest. For people to do lighter coding, and that those people with more time on the job can become more sophisticated. One of the ways that 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 I learned to look at programmers is that there's people who write the tools and there's people who use the tools. Yeah, exactly. Right, and to say, I think a lot of people would think, oh, you know, only real programmers write the tools. Uh, and I was I was susceptible to this because I worked in compilers and we we wrote the tools that the tool makers wrote. <laughs> um, Did you have a factory that made mini factories? I wish. So. I think what what we see with people who are kind of at the end of the chain, the people who are who are harnessing the libraries and, and the NPM ecosystem and, and the browser and, and and that sort of thing to build really fast, really like innovative things. Yeah. That frankly the toolmakers would never have thought of. And so I don't think that that looking at the world through, you know, toolmakers are the real programmers and the other guys are kind of they, they use the tools. I, th- I think it's not a very good way to look at the world. I, th- I think the you know everyone's focusing on where their real value is. Yeah, and I think a lot of they're into. I, I think a lot of the the wave of innovation that we've seen in the last ten years has been because programming is a lot easier. Right. Exactly. Like the the fact that there's, um, you know, Uber was because you you didn't really need. A lot of fancy programming when they first started out. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. now they have incredibly complex programs. Right. But just, well, to, so we're, just, we're, just to get a basic. We're seeing this happening in the in the AI revolution that's happening at the moment. Facebook launched its platform today, and I'm not sure what the what the platform does exactly. But you know, now to build bots is is infinitely cheaper than it was like a year ago, and building AI and and connecting people to to these things is is. So so much easier than it was a year ago, and and a million times easier than it was like ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember like it used to be to to even get like a basic web app up, you had to have knowledge all the way up and down a stack. Right. And now with AWS and Heroku and DigitalOcean, like you can get stuff up just much quicker, right, right, right. and then you could focus on what's the true business, the true business value of what you're building, instead of just it's so hard just to get words on a right. page. I, I've I've been talking. I'm not sure if I've if I've talked about it on the podcast, but talked to certainly the, this is an idea that I've been running through with a while. In the future, people are going to build with like very very simple understanding of, or possibly no understanding of the tools beneath them. And you're going to be able great. to build something that's like the the level of complexity of like a Tinder or a Snapchat with just one product manager who's who's not really a coder in in the way that that. You know, maybe we now, or, or maybe five years ago, that we thought of a coder, but they're going to be building applications with barely under any coding knowledge at all. And I think that's great. I mean, I, oh yeah, completely I, agree. I, I, I compare it to the industrial revolution, where um, it used to be that just getting power was a task in and of itself. Like the reason why there were mills on streams mm-hmm. was to they had to locate them there so they could grind the wheat. Right, right. Suddenly, when there was electricity, you could focus on hey, let's not we not everything has to be around a river. Let's build factories everywhere. Let's make cool stuff. Right, right, right. Um, and that was the. It wasn't just about generating power. It was what can we build now that we have power. Right. And as a as a necessary part of this, you end up with something like like LeftPad. Yeah. 
left pad is is a little bit trivial in in that sense, but I think that the one of the most entertaining parts of this of this thing is that left pad had a quadratic bug in it. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, accidentally, the left pad had had some form of of quadratic behavior in it. And no doubt it would have got fixed in a later version, and everyone got automatically upgraded and, and and so on. But the idea that you're coding your own version of Leftpad means that you're probably going to have quadratic behavior in it, and that's going to be used to exploit your system at some later date in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I totally agree with your your metaphor that there'll be less and less coding and more and more value. Right. And I mean, I do think though, to argue the other side, I do think though that um. I'm thinking more about what you said about the people who build the tools. Okay. I do think they need to have a different skill set then. I mean, I go back to the Yeah, I mean it's it's you have a different set of users, you have a different set of of responsibilities and and they they do different things and and have different properties. Yeah, it, it reminds me very much of um so I love Richard Feynman. I read all his books when I was growing up. And um he talked about how he'd learned so much from our assembling and reassembling radios. Okay. Which just wasn't something that was possible when I was a kid because we'd gone to solid state electronics. Oh, okay, right, right. And um, I, I think we're starting to see a similar transition in coding. That people can't take apart their things. I think in twenty years, people will be amazed at how much access we had to different different components, like like the how open the ecosystems were, that that sort of thing. Yeah, it's just right. the things that we take for granted now will become completely opaque. So people are. are are lamenting this and have been lamenting this for a long, long time. So one of the first comments I saw on, on Hacker News on the Facebook Messenger platform thing today is, you know, what, whatever happened to the open ecosystems? We had IRC. Do we really need this thing? And I agree to to a certain degree that you the agree. open ecosystems are. You agree to degree. I agree uh, that open ecosystems have some value. What I think that people often don't get, especially in the open source ecosystem, is that usually the best product wins. And the openness, basically no one cares. And especially once now that these tools go from early adopter to like mass market in, in such a short period of time, no like RRC is a fucking wasteland. <laughs> All the tools around AIM and Pigeon and that sort of oh, thing around the IM ecosystem are are terrible. XMPP, the protocol doesn't allow you to do anything remotely like what Facebook platform or what WeChat, which is what what Facebook platform is going to become, and as a result, they they lose, right? I mean, primarily they don't have nine hundred million people on them. Yeah, you know, when you're talking, it reminded me very much of Steve Jobs and the Apple computers, because mm. originally the computers were right. the province of the hobbyists, yeah. who would literally like build them from hand from parts, right, like, right, like Radio Shack. Right. Yep. And then he said, "Okay, now it's this closed box that you can't open." Yeah, and everybody's like, "You're not going to sell any." And he sold gajillions. So he eventually sold gajillions, right? Um, and if, if you're if you're in San Francisco, you'll see that there's there's only MacBooks. Like if if you see someone using a Windows computer, it's funny because I'm this, looking around yeah, the podcast room and there's MacBooks. there's six separate Apple products for three people. Right, and there's actually five computers. For three people. That, that's I, 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 I blame I blame our producer Ted for for the proliferation. So everyone in this ecosystem is 
familiar with Linux. At least all, all the all the engineers, let's say, within this ecosystem, have used Linux, used Linux on the server. Maybe they used Linux as a kid on a or you know when when they were growing up, or in, at least in some way younger on you know Adele or. I remember when Linux was new. Well, um, <laughs> well, we'll just we'll just move on from that. What what I'm saying though is. It's not like we were unfamiliar with Linux. It's, I mean, I use Linux for for many years, and I, I eventually got sick of it. Like, it's Apple products were a much much better product, and so I couldn't dig into the you know deep deep down into. Well, actually, I didn't do that very much on Linux anyway. Yeah, I could theoretically if I learned all the stuff and all the vast vast competing bullshit that 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 goes on in the in the Linux development community in the Linux desktop community uh, but frankly I couldn't use Wi-Fi yeah and so I switched yeah I mean it's 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 eternal debate of uh, product manager versus engineers except for the product managers Stockholm right. syndrome so the, 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 this goes with, back to our discussion from a few weeks ago about how open source needs product managers well no I mean so I remember um so this is when I worked for um a content management system, and uh, I would go on customer visits with our architect, mm-hmm. and the architect had designed a system for architects. Hmm, of course, you know, like where you could like tweedle everything, you know, like assemble everything on the fly, like had complete control. And we go out to these newspapers or hotels, and I just, I just want to put a picture of a horse on a page. <laughs> Like I do not want to twizzle all this stuff, and, right, the arch- right, right, and it was right. amazing because the architect and I would go to the same meeting. We go back, and he's like, "Did you see how excited they were about my configuration?" I'm like, "Mary, I screamed at you." <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, actual uh, Stockholm syndrome uh, of no, I was the product manager at the time, and I would I was just like, was just like this is no, they do not want your configuration. Right, they want less configuration. They are tired of configuring. So there are definitely engineers who who like can only design for themselves, can only kind of empathize with with their own usage. Yeah, it's. I mean, it goes back to. I mean, have you read uh, the inmates are running their asylum? I haven't. It's a really good book. It, it, it's 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 about as a tin says. You know, engineers designing for our, they think everybody wants right all this control, and people just want to turn on the tap and have water come out. And so going back to the left pad debate. You know, there's a lot of a lot of the people who are who are screaming about the the you know have we forgotten how to code are are basically applying their worldview to a whole bunch of people who have a different worldview. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, to continue on the electricity example, like no, I don't want to have to do my own electricity. I just want to flip the switch and have it come on. Right, right. Oh, but I want to be able to dig into the into my house and I want to be able to change the voltage because I might have a thing that uh, something something something. I might have brought back a hairdryer from Australia and right, like exactly. urgently yeah, yeah, urgently yeah. need to and use And I need it. one in every room. So every room has to have a 110 thing and a 220 thing and that house is going to burn to the ground. Right. Yeah. I mean it, and, and exactly the, and the the system is built around having people's houses not burned down to the ground. And this is kind of again back to left pad. The the NPM people have uh, vested interest in not letting people's houses burn to the ground. Oh yeah, I, I think it's like with anything. Um, you don't realize it's an issue until it's an issue. Right, right. right. What did they do to fix that? What was their? Um... Well, they changed. Like I said, they changed their policy. They said you can no longer unpublish. Okay. It's for rare emergencies, and it's basically a contact us instead of a button. So they stood by the kick uh, naming decision. Yep. So they stood by the ability to remove the kick package. Good thing the kick package wasn't at the bottom of that uh, turtle yeah. turtle thing. You know that might have been an interesting thing. 
I mean, what if it turned out that the kick one was that was actually was the left pad was kick or yeah yeah it's interesting. I actually think the kick people were in the right. I think there was it was something that was very easy to confuse. Kick is a well known brand, right? So why was it called kick? The guy said he thought he, he the original the non kick guy yeah the programmer just said he liked the name. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I mean that that happens all the time. You got a three letter thing that sounds a bit like a common word in in English and. That's going to happen. And he also said that he didn't believe in copyright law. Well, I mean, this seems like a a very expected result of when you don't believe in a thing that all the rest of society believes in. Yeah. Eventually, society is going to step in and just sort of move you move you aside. Yeah, I thought the way you handled the the Uber logo was very gracious. Well, I mean, we don't own the idea of sort of two concentric circles. What? I know, right? I thought now theirs was theirs was a square in a circle, so you might argue that it wasn't even like our logo. But uh, yes, certainly when I look at it, I see the um, I see the circle logo, and it reminds me every time. Well, does it make you feel good that you can go all over the world now and see Circle CI's logo? No, no, because it's not actual Circle CI's logo; it's Uber's <laughs> logo. At least until they have their next top-down uh, redesign. Yeah, so I think the overall thing is, I think the system is still working out. What it means to truly have microservices. I think that this is a good trend. Sorry, microservices? How does this tie to microservices? Well, I mean, the the left pad was basically a microservice. Well, the left pad was a library. Now, someone made left pad as a service. LPass? Yeah, and LPass is now a category uh, in (laughs) in the way that normal passes are. Someone took left pad as a service, put it behind a, a REST API, and published it. Hmm. Humorously, not for actual money. I think I'm sure you could pay them. Yeah, people pay for feature legs. <laughs> so I wonder what is their monetization then? Is there a management service behind LeftPad that you can control, like how how much padding your developers can have? <laughs> you can you can have an audit trail of uh, of of how often people pad. Their their strings and and you might want to make sure that your developers aren't padding strings too often. <laughs> I feel like you're teasing me, but I'm not completely sure. No, no, no. I, I'm I'm the the general way that people turn something like this into a service is they provide a management layer behind. I mean, feature flags is the same thing. You, your your product is the management layer yeah. of the feature flags, not the idea that you can write an if statement in code. Yeah, I mean that's certainly why people are using us. Right. A feature flag is easy, management is hard. It's the same with Circle CI. People, people don't buy it in order to run a test somewhere because they have plenty of machines that they could run tests on. They they buy the management service, the the unifying place where everyone is doing this thing or everyone on their team is doing this thing. So back to the back to the microservice idea. I think one of the difficult things that people have to deal with is where do you make the boundaries of your of your microservice and. I mean, if you, if you're being strict on the use of the word micro, uh, leftpad would very easily be like the, the level of micro that that, that that people are talking about. I think that's a little small, personally. You think? I I, I kind of think of it as like we have our billing service, and then once billing gets small enough that we need to abstract it into like the PayPal service and the the Stripe service and the invoicing service, then that that's as a result of of how large our architecture or our customer base is. I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's an entirely appropriate size. I mean, it reminds me of like so. I get asked a lot, "What's the appropriate level of feature flag?" Okay. And my basic answer is like wherever you want. Like you could do it with literally with every check in. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, every check? Oh, you could have a different flag for every. 
Do people do that? Sometimes. That's interesting. Is that how people do their continuous deployment in a launch darkly world? Uh, and then we have other people who do it at a much, much higher level, just mm-hmm. for like a major infrastructure project. Gotcha. Oh, that's interesting. So would you you would have your like basically uh, the, the, as as you deploy a new web server, it would check the feature flag for what version that is. Is is that kind of the level that we're talking about? That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's. I think of feature flagging as a technique, and I think people sometimes expect us to be a lot more prescriptive than we are. Uh, okay. Like in terms of oh, how much? Like what you said about microservices, how much should I feature flag? Mm-hmm. And I think I give what comes across as a bit uh, wishy washy, which is like however much you want. Right, 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 right. But I think people think they have to. At one end, there's the people who have wholly bought into trunk based development, mm-hmm. and they feature flag everything. Oh, okay, okay. I guess once you can feature flag everything, you buy into trunk based as as opposed to like branch based. Yeah. Okay. So if you if you if you're full in on the if you're if you're full trunk. Yeah. You are. That, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The I mean you're if you start from the start as your your branch is is your feature flag, you probably get very very good at making sure that you don't break shit as as a result of it, and you also get very good at the idea that everything goes out with a feature flag. Yeah. One of the problems that we had with feature flags initially when we started using it was that people would build a new feature and it would start by like eviscerating the old feature. Yeah. And then they would build a new feature in its place and it would look perfect. And then someone would say, Oh, we should put a feature flag on this. And it's, it's like, like well, it's too late. that would take me another two days. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to go back, redo all this work, put it over there, put it behind a feature flag. And yeah, I, I, I see that it was, it got very difficult to. Build a competency of we're building this other feature on the side, and then we're going to switch to it by a feature flag. Yeah, I mean the, the way the way I think of it is, it's like you're building a new railroad track, right? Um, and so the the first way is basically um, there's this hilarious cartoon I've seen of like somebody trying to fix fix a railroad track while the train is moving, and you know you're like right. And the the feature flag way is more like, hey, let's build another track. Yeah, yeah, and, and then, then we're ready to to switch to it. Yeah, so that reminds me of microservices. I think it's a, it's microservices is kind of a made up term. Mm-hmm. So I think everybody's still trying to trying to figure out what does that actually mean. How, right. how micro and mini are these and macro? I mean, I, 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 as far as I can tell, microservices are just service oriented architecture. Yeah, uh, and they're they're really anyone who's using microservices is largely building SOAs, and just microservices is the is the. Uh, common term that people use to describe it, and no one's really that concerned with with making them micro. Yeah, why do you think SOA fell out of so much favor? Because uh, it got tied to things like SOAP and like the software is a very fashion oriented world. It's funny that way. Yeah, uh, it, it really is. I mean, maybe everything else is. No, just terms like terms are popular. Like Corba used to be the thing. Right, right, right. And now people are like Corba. Right, and Corbo is the kind of thing that you associate with it with service-oriented architectures. Oh no, Corbo was before it. I kind, of, I kind of put them in a in a similar box. The the box of old things. Yeah, the the box of old things that I touched once or twice. And <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that I'm never near them again. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of Launch Darkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.